Indeed, O oh God, we know that our whole identity is bound up with that of your son, Jesus Christ. Our whole future is, is banking on that finished work. Our, our, our persons are to be discovered and developed as we see ourselves in the light of his countenance. We are a people for whom Christ is all and in all. We understand that we are forgiven because you have seen fit to look upon him and pardon me. And so in the light of his accomplished work, we glory this morning. And we ask that you will prepare us to meet you at this table in the coming minutes, that we might be reminded how grievous indeed is our sin that took Jesus to that cross, but also how glorious is the grace that has found a way, made a way for sinners to find forgiveness. So, Father, meet us. Meet us around your word. Meet us at this table. Prepare us for that, even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. I'm going to read Psalm 88 in its entirety. It is our text. But before I do, I'd like to tell you a little about about it. Psalm 88 is famous. You may not know it's famous, but it's famous nonetheless. It's famous because it is unique among the whole psaltery. That is, the uh, the 150 psalms. It is unique. It stands alone in in one particular way that uh, is not altogether... Celebratable, but um, it's unique in that it is considered, next to the crucifixion, it is considered the darkest passage in all of the Bible. Certainly the darkest of all the Psalms, and again, uh, next to the crucifixion, if not the most, the darkest passage of the Bible. There is no relief in these verses. There's no happy ending, there's no hint of joy or hope or deliverance, no sense of expectancy. If you'll notice, the final word in this psalm is the word darkness. No other psalm slams the door on hope or slams the door on any ray of light as as firmly as does this psalm. Not only that, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll notice... Psalm 88 is written by the sons of Korah. Notice that above uh, verse 1. Who were they? The sons of Korah were the, the, the song leaders, the music directors, the worship directors, the Jim Umlofs of the world. How is it that a group of people who were known for their leadership over acts of celebration, how is it that those guys could sing something so utterly dark as Psalm 88. You know, it makes you wonder, why is this in the Bible at all? And um, certainly, what does it have to do with the whole subject of midlife? I hope you'll know that answer by the time we're finished. You follow now in your copies as I read to you Psalm 88 in its entirety. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. 
For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up, and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone before me, or gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me, they engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. See what I mean? The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, guys, our culture seems to be pretty much convinced that there is such a thing as a midlife crisis. They're pretty convinced that that's a reality. And, and I'm not here to, to, um, to argue with them. But our, our culture pretty much adopts the, the idea that somewhere around the middle of a life, bad things happen. Now, like I said to you last week, you know, John Glenn is the one who said there's not yet been found a cure for the common birthday. Well, there's not yet been found a cure for the midlife crisis. I want to suggest to you that Psalm 88, this is my point, Psalm 88 is a part of the cure. Not all of it, but it's a part of the cure. To illustrate that, I want to start off this morning with a, with a story. It's a case study. I meant to bring the book. I, I, this is a case study that came out of a book. It didn't happen to me. It's not one of my counseling cases. Um, much of what I got uh, out of when I preach, I get out of a book. And I found a lot of stuff in this book that I meant to bring with me, and I forgot it. But let me tell you about this, uh, this story. It's a true story. It's a guy, about a guy by the name of Sam. Sam um, woke up one morning, and his day started pretty much like all other days had started. Uh, everything was pretty, you know, normal. He, uh, he showered. He shaved. He he sat down and drank a cup of coffee and read his Spurgeon's Morning and Evening devotional booklet uh, before he scarfed down a bowl of cereal, went off and kissed his wife, got in the car and drove to work. He was looking forward to the same old, same old, uh, except for there was indeed on his schedule a visit to the doctor that was scheduled for 3.30, which was just kind of a follow-up to his annual physical that he'd had a couple of days before. So at 3.30 that afternoon, Sam is sitting in a doctor's office holding a magazine that he's really not interested in and reading, not, not really reading the thing, and complaining to himself about why doctors overbook and make you sit out there and wait so long. 
Well, it wasn't long before the nurse, his name was called, a nurse comes out, comes and gets him, and she, he follows the nurse back into the, um, to the examining room. Uh, one much longer after that, Dr. Blair, his doctor, comes into the room, and uh, he doesn't have that cheery little look on his face that he's always had before. And in fact, he doesn't say the same things that he used to say. What he used to say is, well, everything looks great, and I'll see you next year. But he didn't say that this time. He said, um, there are some things that have come up in the tests that concern me, and I want to look further into them, and I've scheduled a stress test for tomorrow. So Sam, uh, a little bit shaken, leaves the doctor's office, but shows up the next day for his stress test. And um, uh, as a result of the stress test, he has another follow-up visit with Dr. Blair. Dr. Blair comes into his office and says, Sam, you have serious blockage in four arteries, and we have to do bypass surgery. Sam was not even allowed to go home. Uh, he was allowed to call his wife. He was immediately then taken to a hospital and entered into a hospital room and put in a hospital bed where he was hooked up to all kinds of machines. He was absolutely overcome with this shocking discovery. He was tall. He was lean. Uh, he, uh, you know, had already been rather physically active. Uh, you know, it never felt bad in a day in his life. He didn't have particularly bad eating habits, but he was still facing bypass surgery. He didn't sleep much that night. He kept uh, saying to himself, in an effort to comfort himself, that, um, uh, you know, I really haven't had a heart attack yet, and so there's really, uh, we're really not dealing with major heart damage here. But he was still confused, disoriented, and, and somewhat afraid. The next day, he spent most of his time comforting his wife, Fran, uh, in between those pre-op things that they did to prepare him for surgery. When the surgery was over, Sam came out of that surgery... A completely different man, different physically, different emotionally. For the first time in his life, he felt like an old man. He was 47. He expected those feelings of being elderly uh, to pass soon after he recovered from the surgery. But um, as days wore on into weeks, Sam began to wonder if he would ever ever be the same. The um, extended disability leave that he got from work soon morphed into uh, uh, talks about whether or not he could ever do the same job again. Uh, eventually, the discussions turned into whether there was another job, perhaps, at the company that he could do. And then finally, he was sat down and entered into final negotiations about a severance package. The shock of that first year was so powerful that Sam could hardly catch his breath from all of this new information that he was trying to deal with. And even at that, it was only after his job was over that he was finally stuck at home, spending days thinking about what he was going to do with the rest of his life, that the weight of what had happened to him finally sank in. Sam was not yet 50, and he felt like he had no future. All of the people who had, had stood by him in this time of crisis and, in, and had walked with him through this surgery had not, now gone back to their lives. His wife had taken a part-time job and was beginning to study to complete her master's three nights a week at a, a local university. Sam hated his house 
because his house had become his own private personal prison. He hated going out because everybody he saw, he envied. He hated to think about how his life really didn't add up to all that much. He, he reasoned that, uh, that he had failed at doing what he should have done. And most of his dreams that he had for his future now evaporated unfulfilled. There were, there were many things that Sam could do. He, he was by no means an invalid. In fact, there were many job opportunities available to him. But none of that interested him. Sam spent more and more of his time alone. And when he was with people, he was mostly silent and withdrawn. He had painted in his own mind and a, uh, an idyllic picture of what his life was like before the operation, which was really uh, not true to reality. But he had also painted another picture of his life after the operation, and that, too, was much darker than uh, reality actually was. Uh, he couldn't believe that a good God would let this happen to him. He couldn't understand why, after so many years of obeying God, this is what he got. Now, gang, you know that there are a number of stories that I could have used that could have confronted us with the, the, the unexpected providences of midlife. Those things that, that rattle our cage to the core of our being. Um, and, and, and many of them often occur during this period of midlife. We could have talked about lots of things. We could have talked about uh, an unexpected job loss. We could have talked about a divorce that we didn't want or an, a rebellious kid. We could have talked about a lot of things. I simply chose this story because I thought it was at least one of those things that tend to happen in this period called um, midlife. Guys, one of the, um, one of the hardest parts of times like these this time of personal suffering, this time of surprise, this time of crisis, whatever you want to call it, is that the Bible suddenly becomes functionally irrelevant for us. It seems that God is silent and that heaven is brass. Just like you read in Psalm 88. Folks, those guys, those sons of Korah there in Psalm 88 are at a point in their lives, they are experiencing something in their lives where God not only seems distant, distant, but it's as if he has turned completely away from them. You know, I bet Sam said something like that. He feels alone, that no one understands, that nobody cares, really. God, I'm dying here. And my only friend is a guy by the name of Darkness. Tell me, can a Christian get to the place where he has no functional joy or practical hope? The sons of Korah did. Gang, Psalm 88 speaks to us. It speaks to us about our desire to have a, a warm, fuzzy, mushy, predictable Christian life. 
we, um, we want a Christianity that's full-bodied and, and full of vim and vigor and vitality and zip. We, we want a Christian life that is, that is rooted in personal peace and prosperity where we skip from one victory right on to the next one. And in those occasions where those rare difficulties arrive, we want them to be solved by some kind of theological ditty and a smattering of prayer. And then along comes four bypass surgery. An unexpected job loss. A divorce that came out of the blue. My dear brother and sister in Christ, I want you to look with me. It's back again at Psalm 88. And I want you to see what it has to say to us and to Sam um, in the hope that we'll find a portion of the cure for the thing that our culture so likes to talk about, a midlife crisis. Five things, real quick, that I think Psalm 88 has to say to us, not not simply concerning midlife, but concerning life, (laughs) all of it. You know, guys, the Bible is able to unpack any experience of life because it's a a book that was written by the author of life. But let me me kind of mention five quick things, and then I want to meet you at the table. First of all, here's one of the things that Psalm 88 will tell you. It'll tell you this. Life in a fallen world can be hard. The world is broken, my brother and sister in Christ, and so are we. None of us are exempt from pain and darkness. There will be times in our experience we're trying to figure God out and what He's doing will make our brains hurt. That's one of the things it says. Secondly, it says that the heaven that we all long for now is not now. That the heaven that we long for is yet to come. Heaven is not here. It is not now. Jesus stands in front of Pilate and he says, My kingdom is not of this earth. Heaven is not here, guys. And in the meantime, while we wait on it, Christians age. Christians get cancer. Christians divorce. Christians have car accidents. Christians' houses burn just as well as non-Christian houses. Psalm 88, I hope, will convince you that heaven is not now. It's later. Thirdly, events like these, like you see being described by the sons of Korah. Now, by the way, that you don't get the details of what they're going through. You just get their emotional reaction to their events. So my point is, I don't know what your event is, but I bet you that your emotional responses are similar. There are similar emotional responses to the events that life deals up. Well, in events like these, and often in midlife, what they do 
is that they illumine the self-absorbed lives that we live. Well, how's that, Jimmy? Well, first of all, guys, we think somehow underneath it all that we are owed a happy life. And we're ticked when God doesn't deliver that happy life. What Psalm 88 will tell you is that God is not after the same things we're after. You know, um, what we're after is a life that doesn't include this or it, whatever this or it is. This psalm makes abundantly clear that God is willing to include it in your life. Because he's not after the same things we're after. And so in the midst of recognizing that, what we see is how absorbed we all are in our own personal peace and security and prosperity. Fourth, my dear brother and sister in Christ, if your hope lies in your circumstances or in your ability to figure things out about your circumstances, you're in trouble. You may have been able to get away with that for the first 35 years, but not anymore. We sing a song that I love. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. My dear friend, if your hope is fixed on your circumstances, on your present peace of prosperity, or your ability to analyze your circumstances, you have underneath you shifting sand that is going to erode underneath you. It's going to give way. Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If you trust the other's sweetest frame, you're going to find that you're built a life on a sand. And then fifthly and finally, and this is, this is something that I hope you will hear. If you're asleep, wake up. Listen to this. Gang, the hope of Psalm 88 is found in the fact that there is no hope in it. What do you mean by that? What I mean, guys, is this. What you're confronted with in Psalm 88 isn't wrapped up with some nice little theological bow wrapped around it. It's hopeful because it's honest. It's hopeful because it's real. The God of this psalm really does understand the deepest groans of my heart. This God gets it. What does this all have to do with midlife? My, My friend, I would say it has everything to do with midlife. 
Because it's during those years, that, that section called midlife, that stuff like Psalm 88 seems to happen with a greater degree of frequency. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in other periods of our lives, but I'm saying that it seems to be more shocking, more surprising, more unpredictable in this period of life that we call midlife. We're, we're disappointed because we're aging. And we see the things that are, that are taken from us as we do. We're disillusioned with our plans that now seem completely unattainable. We, we look back at wasted time and the years that we wasted. We think of the sin in our lives and, it's, and, and, it, and it amounts to a category, a catalog of sin that is too numerous to count. Bubbles burst. Children disappoint. Health fails. Careers fizzle. Wealth disappears. And into that messy, ugly porridge of shattered dreams strides a God who gets it. A God who understands and who patiently stands with me in the midst of my darkness. The darkness may be dark to me. It was for Sam. It was for the sons of Korah. But it is not for this God of ours, gang. There, there is no thought so distorted, no emotion so powerful, no circumstance so horrible, no action so twisted and perverted, no desire so desperate as to be outside the reaches of the grace of this God. He gets it. Psalm 88 is in the Bible, my friend, to remind us that the circle of God's grace around us is big enough to contain every experience that this broken world can hurl at us. There's nothing wimpy about this God or the grace that he extends to sinners like me. Again, what does this have to do with midlife? How does, how does this psalm relate to the lostness and the aloneness and the disappointment and the, and the disorientation that many people experience during midlife? Listen, my dear friend, because Psalm 88 is in the Bible, you can say to yourself, what I am going through right now is not beyond the redemptive work, the redemptive plan of God for me. The loving hands of this God of mine are long enough to reach me and long enough to hold on to me into the details of the experience that I'm now suffering. This thing this thing that I'm now experiencing, it too is the kind of thing for which God has granted me grace. He gets it. He understands the depth of our agony, guys. 
so I say to you, it is impossible to get so lost in midlife that grace can't find you. It's inconceivable that you could experience a confusion so great that God wouldn't understand it. Brother and sister, this is our hope. You can never live beyond the reaches of His grace. That's why it's in there. That's why Psalm 88 is in the Bible. And as dark and as confused and as disorienting as your circumstances might seem, we dig our nails into the walls of His grace and we hang on. And that, my friend, is a part of the cure for the thing known as a midlife crisis. You think about that. Our Father, I do pray that your people might find great joy in understanding a a bit more about who you are, um, what you do, how you understand, that they might come to the place where they are they sense a great measure of comfort in knowing that there are no bottom. There is no bottom to your grace. They will never reach it. They will never come to the place where grace can't find them. Now, Father, as we consider such a truth, meet us now as we revel in the glories of grace. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.